0: I dreamed a dream the other night. So of my yellow hair Lowlands Lowlands away my John no other man will think me fair lowlands, My love lies drowned
1: Wilder folk to Hyperborean Radio. With us today is the Lorekeeper and Neil Aethelwolf Rundgren. How are you doing today, Lorekeeper?
2: I'm doing alright. I'm doing good. I'm drinking some tea and I'm looking
3: forward to uh, the show today. How are you today, Aethelwolf? Uh, let me stop painting for a second. You can tell that this is a real deal because the artist is painting whilst discussing arts.
1: Oh, my goodness.
3: That is how <laughs> yeah. Um, oh. But otherwise, I am doing quite well. Thank you very much for asking.
1: Might I ask uh, what you're working on at the moment?
3: Um, I'm working on my Fenrir piece, uh, wherein I'm busy painting his nostrils. How exciting is that? <laughs> oh,
1: can you stick a finger in it? That's my only question. Can you stick a finger in it?
3: Judging by his size, I could probably fit my entire body. Nostril. Considering
2: (laughs) how big Fenrir is supposed to be, yes, I could see that.
3: Um, Yeah, uh, his nostril would be the size of a cave.
1: (laughs) Well, and I I just want to cover something real quick because um, there's there's people that um, they might be worried that we stop talking about paganism or ethnic faith or. Uh, basically, the, the way of the wild, or the way of the wild people. But no, not at all. There's more to it than ritual or the stories of the gods. It is day-to-day life. If you're doing it right, there is no actual name for it because it is simply just living. And uh, we're talk- talking with you again today about art. Yep. And that is actually part of it. It doesn't have to be all waving feathers around or smudge sticks or circles in the mm-hmm. dirt or specific stories. It's literally about living and art is part of life.
2: Exactly. And uh, you're actually doing a piece on Fenrir at the moment, Aethelwulf, and uh, Fenrir is actually mm-hmm. your, uh, what, your patron. He's the deity yeah. that most appeals to you. So That's I, correct, yeah. I know that whenever you do Fenrir, you get really hard on yourself because you're trying to do it justice.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
1: I'm guessing in part because there's so much bad art on.
2: Oh God! Yeah. Uh,
3: Fenrir. Uh, or uh, what well, was it? well, look no further than Ubisoft's depiction of Fenrir. Oh God! Oh, that, that that really that that get uh, that that cracks my nutsack every time I see that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and before we get into the art,
2: there is a picture out there, it might be hard to find, of Fenrir as a puppy resting his head on Loki's lap.
1: This exists. It's on Loki's so, lap?
2: Yeah. Fenrir is, uh, it's, I feel like this is important to bring up, he's vilified in the modern day But if you think about it, at the time, the entire church, the entire uh, church that was moving in, had vilified all wolves as demons. And now you have a giant wolf off on an island that has no wolves, because there are no wolves on Iceland. And that's where most Mm -hmm. of the stories were written down. And... You are constantly being bombarded, and you even have many among you from a culture that views wolves as literal demons. So, what do you think happens to a god who is a giant wolf
3: over time? Right. So. Yeah, he, yeah. he becomes the uh, the pinnacle of evil, basically.
1: Pretty much, yes. Must be chained and have something jammed in his mouth, and then tossed off mm-hmm. to the side. Uh, yeah. So, and, and there is there's so much. And so much bad art of Fenrir for one, but uh, the other is even the ones that are done well have a tendency to vilify him. What'd and you... I, I think that's mm-hmm. kind of why you, you stress so hard about it is because you're trying to show he's not a villain and uh, along with the strength and the might and
2: yeah. well, I all mean, that it's, wildness. It's even in the story when he's getting chained up, he's, doing it, he's participating because he wants to impress people.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's a good good boy. He just wants to be loved. He wants to be one of the guys.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. uh, And I think that's something because there's actually an old saying: it's the uh, the gods tend to whisper to the bards or something like that. mm -hmm. So the poetry, the arts, basically artists, arts arts period, tends to have a little bit of the divine in them it's the yeah. you could say artists manifest the divine in physical form that's largely what their their purpose is whether it's embodying it like an actor or uh, something along that or a comedian or something along those lines or uh someone who is a writer embodying it in a book or like aetherwolf uh with his art so there's always that and We've spoke, we spoke of this before at one point on uh, quality and I think part of what people see when they see quality is that little spark of the divine uh, that's in yeah. us and that's probably part of the reason artists can get completely and utterly exhausted. I mean if you were giving like a piece of, the, of your own div- uh, divinity up every time you made an art piece that really meant something to you. Well,
3: it gets rather yeah. exhausting. It does, yeah. Okay, um, well, that being said, I'll start us off on the next topic. Um, okay, so I'll talk about my favorite art genres, which are Romanticism in combination with Luminism, is the genre that's facilitates an artist's ability to capture and emphasize individualism, as well as the glorification of the past and, of course, nature. The subtlety, attentiveness, contrast and passion are the many hallmarks found within romantic artwork as the artist will spare no expense to ensure detail and subject matter are at the forefront of every stroke. Uh, Romantic artists have been documented to exaggerate their artwork so as to accentuate the beauty of the painting to make it seemingly more majestic basically eye candy and this is normally done through the use of the subgenre luminism which is basically a play on light and shadow uh, there are many prolific romantic artists who shape the course of the genre such as Albert Bestadt Thomas Cole, Frederick Church, and Joseph Turner. Fun fact, Joseph Turner's art style slash colors were inspired by a cataclysm, or sorry, a cataclysmic event called the the Year Without Summer in 1816, a volcanic eruption which altered the climate of Europe but created a dazzling array of yellows, reds, and oranges across the atmosphere due to volcanic ash, soot, and gases. However, most of Joseph Turner's artwork has faded over the years due to his choice of paint material, which I do believe is or was carmine, that lacked the durability and therefore caused the loss of pigments. Um, another genre I, and I adore is the restoration genre of the 1600s, also known as the Carolean movement. It was heavily influenced by German and Flemish Baroque artists, and therefore the characteristics are quite similar in terms of color, medium, lighting, shadows, realism, and and/or subject matter. It it also inspired neoclassical art, whereby nature, realism, nudity, etc., became its core tenants. Very similar, very similar to the Renaissance period, as both genres were more or less and. Yeah, both genres were more or less an up-yours attitude towards Christianity. Because they, in secret, celebrated the very aspects that were antithetical to the doctrine of the church. It's the very reason why I laugh when Christians fawn over such works, when it was a connotative fuck you to them for censorious restrictions as a means to ensure the arts are aligned with biblical parables.
1: Yeah, isn't that the uh, the time period when a lot of artists was uh, being, um, basically imprisoned uh, for a heresy yeah. or a heretical acts?
2: Yeah. Was this around the same time like Louis the Fourteenth was getting himself painted as Jupiter, or am I way off time wise? Uh, Louis
3: the Fourteenth. Also
2: known as the Sun King, he had like a whole thing with like Apollo and Jupiter and stuff
3: like that. Uh, I think that was done at a later stage. I'm not too sure. I'll have to double check on that one.
1: But so uh, yeah, and um, there's all kinds of the uh, the painting genres, but there's a lot of genres of of art actually. And uh, as we stated last time. Art is. It's very important. It, it's it's not everything because if all you have is artists, then what you end up with, long haul, or not even such long haul, is a bunch of starved to death people. But yeah. <laughs> it does highlight the beauty and even on occasion the horrors of life.
2: Well, I and mean, mm-hmm. in many ways, that's kind of one of the the points of art is. It's not a necessity to live. Well, no, it's not true. It's not a necessity to survive, but it is a necessity to live.
1: Right. A very fine uh, distinction there is living and surviving are two different things. You don't need art to survive. However, to live, to, to thrive, to, um, to prosper, I guess, you do. Uh, and, yeah. and it can be taken in so many different directions. I, I myself, um, I, I like a lot of the the classical art. I like some of the the new stuff that's done, uh, not Tumblr because that's not art. Um, yeah, not. Nah. <laughs> and neither is is meme art. I I don't find meme meme art to be um, art because it's not really uplifting. Uh, yeah. It, even uh, I, I mentioned it last time, like the gro- grotesque and the, the macabre. In many ways these things can be um, uplifting because yeah. it, it's by comparison, I guess, it shows you how horrible things could be.
2: Well, it's like, why do people yeah. watch a sad movie to make their own life seem less
1: depressing? Right. Well, or to re- or, or simply opener. to remember what sorrow feels like. Precisely. It's, what, uh, what was you saying, Neil? Uh,
3: so, uh, they're basically an eye-opener of the, the, as I said, the tumult of an otherwise chaotic world. Hmm.
2: Well, and I think that's one thing, and I don't want to get too far into movies again, but um, <laughs> that's one thing a lot of films are missing right now, is you can tackle serious subjects, but they're not doing it in a way that actually fulfills any sort of need for the medium. And that is something people need to take into mind when they are doing a piece of art, is what is the function of your medium? For instance, mm-hmm. is... Uh, Is making a film that tells this story the best course of action if you're going to take it in a certain direction? Or is it perhaps better to do it as a movie or a documentary? Mm -hmm. or I mean, not a movie, a book or a documentary or perhaps a painting or a political cartoon?
1: Well, you bring it up quite often. Is um, What does this thing, and it doesn't matter what the thing is, what does it add to your life? Or is it subtracting from your life?
2: Well, and this is something Mm -hmm. that's been fairly common, is I think even art that is pretty nowadays, a lot of times, it subtracts from your life. Like, for instance, Mm -hmm. if you go to, like, uh, Target or Walmart or something, they'll have art all over the place. Art in quotation marks. Because they'll put effort into branding and advertising, and they'll have, you know, like a a cruddy CD case that has a beautiful embroidery that a machine did on it.
3: That's what we call commercial art. Precisely.
2: And that is rampant right now. And sometimes it actually Mm. is beautiful. Like, like it's not always something that I think subtracts, but I think we are... One of the reasons that art has gotten so bad is that the good art, by and large, while it exists, it's sort of brushed to the side or devalued. Art Mm. that does not embolden or add something is pushed forward And then most of the art we are exposed to, on average, is more akin to commercial art. Billboards, um, uh, giant statues of advertisements. Most
1: magazines, not European diaspora. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Self-plug. Well, because we did, we worked a lot of art into this last magazine. Uh, And not not all of it is... um, is from our artists that collaborate with us. Some of it's older art, but we we worked a lot of artwork into it
2: Ludwig and, and made it
1: flow with with the magazine.
2: Yeah, like uh, from Ludwig Peitsch or from uh, Arthur Rackham, and that actually gets into one of my favorite genres, which is like that golden age of illustration, the printmaking. I adore like that and like right before it because there was. Mm-hmm. The golden age is a very specific time period, but there's a lot of good ones from before and after uh, that are from this printmaking period, and it's really, really beautiful. And it's something that I, I wish we still did for um, for fairy tales, because I do have a Grimm's fairy tale book with prints in it, and, and credit where credit's due, they, they are new ones that were done, I think, specifically for that book, as far as I know. Uh, Mm-hmm. They take a more simplistic, less magical look to it. But it's still, they did it. It's a plus.
1: So um, what, what genres are you pursuing at the moment?
3: Um, nothing in particular, though. I am trying to replicate, I guess would be the correct word, not necessarily copy stroke by stroke, but sort of replicate the 1800s genres, which I do believe... One of them is romanticism um, as well as luminism, well, in combination with luminism, but I'm I'm thinking that uh, I, I'm not necessarily a fan of Impressionism to, to per se, but I'd like to incorporate some of the style right. um, just as a,
0: as well, a texture. Impress- in, in impressionism
1: Impressionism is one of those um, art styles, it's it's like meatloaf. Mm. It's either really good or really not. It's really
3: bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is nothing it's in erratic. between. Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, the, the,
3: the, the, the impressionism is erratic, but the form is there.
1: Yes.
2: Well, and this is kind of the issue that impressionism had is I think that if you take impressionism and you take it as what I, I think was its point, which was to convey not just the image, but the feeling behind the image... In, in an almost, like, not trying to have the feeling outrank the form, I guess, is how Impressionism kind of worked. Yeah. And it
1: worked for, yeah. like, Monet or uh, some of those. The but, ones I don't like are the ones, uh, crap, I can't remember the artist. I absolutely detest most of his work. Picasso? I think so. Picasso? It's the guy that does the runny faces and the melty clocks. Oh, that's and, um, the, yeah. The, 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 the weird ass yeah, his style is called Cubism. Yeah.
2: Uh, Picasso is Cubism, and then
1: Salvador Dali was Surrealism. Yeah, which I'm not a fan of those, but I, I like the ones that are like... um. I don't know. Uh, in the last show, I, I described it. It's like the field of, of flowers, and when you first look at it, it just looks like a smeared mess until you step back, and you don't directly look at it, and then it's almost like looking out a window at A Field of Flowers.
2: Well, and with Salvador Dali, I do not personally like his work, but I do like surrealism, Mm -hmm. even though Salvador Dali is probably one of the most well-known individuals, if not, Mm -hmm. I think, the founder of that genre, or at least... Because there was a whole uh, period of time, especially in Latin America, where there was, like, a huge burst of surrealist uh, artists, and I think with I just don't like Salvador Dali's work. I think the best—and this is odd for me—the best work I've seen from Salvador Dali is his uh, rendition of the Last Supper. Uh, yeah. Image-wise, it is probably his best painting, even though it's it's Christian uh, topic. But with Salvador, but uh, with Picasso, when I was really young, I liked him. Mm-hmm. As an adult, I detest his work. Well, mm-hmm.
1: and and here's the other thing too that I would argue with art is if it's real art, you don't have to like it. You can still recognize it for what it is. I I would like to add a quick addendum to
2: Picasso, though. I forget what it's called, but there's this one painting from his blue period that I actually really like. It's the one where the man is playing a guitar. That is a fantastic painting, but almost everything else from Picasso, especially when he gets really, really cubit, because this is basically where if this had been where it stopped, I probably would have been fine with it. If nobody else had ever tried to copy Picasso, because then you could just say, okay, that was Picasso being He got weird. Yeah, he got weird. He had some great pieces, and he had some terrible pieces, but then people actually took cubism and kept doing it. And and it actually devolved to the point where it's pretty as a pattern, but it's not a painting. And this is where you get, you know... Because I used to get into arguments with my dad over modern art because my dad actually liked... Well, quote-unquote likes it. He likes it for the social points. Um, mm. But I got into an argument with him once in a museum, and it was it was, a, it was a small argument. It didn't go anywhere. But he was trying to convince me that this painting that was literally just white on top of white on top of white that I'm guessing probably cost like $600,000 or something, or millions <laughs> of dollars. Ludicrous. <laughs> was somehow a masterwork. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. I, I don't care what he was intending to convey with this image. In fact, based on what you're telling me, the very fact that this painting is being taken seriously is exactly the statement
1: he was trying to make to not do. Uh-huh. All right, and then here we're going on this very uplifting <laughs> note. <laughs> while you soak in the absolute horror of the state of current art. Um, we're going to pause for a commercial break. And, um, we, yeah, we, we thank everybody that listens to the podcast. So we hope that you appreciate what is, if not yet, soon will be some new commercials read. So, uh, yeah, we'll be right back. All right, we're back.
3: Okay, um, I I wanted to say, do you know to which art style cubism devolved?
2: Modern art?
3: (laughs) Campbell's soup can? Yeah, um, but to be be more... (laughs) (laughs) Andy Andy Warhol. Yeah, yeah.
1: I find his stuff absolutely just ridiculous.
3: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um yeah no it's it's cubism devolved to what is called uh neoplasticism also known as distilge i utterly loathe that art style because what it is basically just lines to form blocks but those blocks are filled in with color i think you've seen some artwork like that before oh
1: is that like that crap that it's all over the 1970s television shows sometimes it's square blocks uh, other times yeah. it might be like these weird melty lines, but it's, it's yep. always blobs a, of color. That yep. is the worst. I, I, I well, didn't. no, no, no. They've topped the worst. That is the worst of the past.
2: Well, and Jackson yeah. Pollock, and I, I detest Jackson Pollock's work. This is basically what Jackson Pollock's works are good for, because there was one in my hometown. Stare at it until you randomly see images, and you might sleep well, well later that yeah. night. Or have really weird nightmares. What is
1: that one art style? It's like, the background will be blue, and then it has purple and yellow dots all over it, like like the, the artist just stood backwards uh, that's,
3: and um, flicked um, paint that's, at it. That's, um... It's not Horrible? minimalist. It's not minimalist. Um, I know of which you speak. Um, hang on, let me Google it quickly. Um, it's disgusting. Uh, that's what it is. Yeah, the, the dots... Um, Hang on, hang ten. Because um, they, they don't even form any patterns.
2: Yeah, it's, it's not like the like Sunday randomness. in the Park, where it's composed of dots, but
1: there's still an image. Right, because I've I've yeah. seen those. Some of those are very very cool, but yeah, the ones I'm talking about, it's it's literally it, it looks like it's just splattered on there. There is no hidden image. Well, uh, for anyone, there that we had... go. Um,
3: point, so, sorry, I have it. Pointillism.
2: Uh, I don't. I think that might be different than what he's talking about. Because Point uh, Sunday okay, in the Park um, is pointillism, I believe.
3: Um, pointillism is a technique of painting in which small, distinct dots of color are applied in patterns to form an image.
1: Oh, that's the one that I don't mind. There's another one that I detest uh, okay. because it doesn't form an image. Uh, uh, okay. You're thinking more like a Jackson Pollock, like just paint on. Yeah, a, it's like, like something that a dog might do if you covered it in paint and then had put the. Um, well,
2: that's a bit insulting to dogs because they've had animals paint, like they've had ravens paint, and it still turns out yeah. better than this. At least. <laughs> at least the paint, the picture of the Raven painting with blacks and reds is the most goth thing you've ever seen. At oh least my. it can be <laughs> yeah, kill, killing that. Um, mm. And, like, the 1950s art with Andy Warhol. As bad as it is, at least if you do, like, a 1950s nostalgia
1: thing, there's just easy access. No- Norman but, Rockwell is probably one of my favorite artists. So. Oh, he's fantastic. And, and he's famous for um, Magazine covers and magazines calendars and magazines. Uh, to me it's some of the prettiest and it, they're in essence sim- simple images, but they are so well done, makes you want to crawl into the picture. Well, and this is the thing that I think happens I, with I, I think he's he's partly responsible too for the uh the romanticism of the 1950s.
2: Yeah, I think so because of
1: his paintings. Yeah, everybody wants to be in those paintings. Which is part of why yeah. I say he's such a great artist is because nobody wants to be part of a Andy Warhol painting. Well, and mm. Norman Rockwell had a fantastic
2: ability because everything looks real and not real at the same time mm-hmm. without hitting that uncanny valley. It's just unreal enough that he can paint it with the realistic tones and stuff. And you could imagine this scene really happening. Mm-hmm. But he makes it... He, he found that sweet spot, which is one of the reasons his art's so good. It's... Almost like a, a car, if real life was a cartoon didn't he also do the uh, coca cola Santa Claus? yeah, he did a few of those he did a, quite a few Santa Clauses actually over the course of his career and Norman Rockwell is actually an example of when art started to become like the best artists were almost getting shoved to the side mm-hmm. and they had to get jobs uh, basically doing stuff for companies because Norman Rockwell, like you said, magazine covers mm-hmm. Or uh, today, like, one of my favorite artists in the modern day is Seb McKinnon. Mm-hmm. Seb McKinnon yeah. painted what I consider one of the...
1: Is it, Doesn't he do a lot of the artwork for uh, Magic, Magic the, the Gathering?
2: Gathering? Yeah, he does. And Why? Because it, he can eat. Yes, and then he's able to do passion projects, like make entire films that are actually some of the best I've seen um, on a, in his free time, where he even composes the soundtrack. But he, he <laughs> yeah. painted probably one of the best paintings in the last 10 years I'd say which is um and it, it was just to promote the card game that's what's most ridiculous about it Seb McKinnon's Throne of Eldraine look up that painting it is quite possibly one of the best paintings I have ever seen and it encapsulates the fairy tale genre so perfectly that I cannot
1: fully describe it in words and we have set the bar so high now Aethel Wolf just quits <laughs>
3: hey, getting there. Yeah, He's I'm, having look at it. I'm having a look at his artwork right now and I must say I feel um,
0: <laughs>
3: um, I suck
0: <laughs>
3: uh, I'm trying to think no, of the word uh,
0: <laughs>
1: but you're you're yeah. getting very very good like I really like the picture which is why I asked if we could use it on the, uh, the yeah, Wilder Homes yeah. Project um, website is that banner that we have up there. I, I don't remember what it is that you called it. I probably should get in there and then see if I can figure out how to apply the, the title to the of the picture on there. Um, but that that's beautiful. I, I like that mountain one that you did. I like some of the, the yeah. work that you're coming out with now, your passion projects. Are, they're okay. really impressive. Um, but you keep mentioning uh, Romanticism. What is that style? I know what, uh, what Luminism um, is. Uh, that's... The, and for the people in the audience, those are those pictures where it looks like they're lit from behind, but there's no light behind it. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's basically, um, I think, luminism, as I said, is, is a play on light and shadow. Because luminism, you, you'll notice it when you see it as luminism comes in the form of what we call uh, sun rays or crepuscular rays, as the, that, that particular segment... Of also um, that particular part of the composition lights up everything else whilst the surrounding edges remain dark um, but overall romanticism basically facilitates an artist's ability to capture and in- to emphasize individualism which is why you'll notice um, people or certain people in the in the composition itself and um, doing whatever it is uh, in, in whichever pose um, as well as, glor- as well as the glorification of the past and, of course, nature itself, because most romantic artists are, in actual fact, painting landscapes. I mean, oh, and- I think we've all seen Albert Biestat's um, work. Every single piece is a, an extraordinary, or should I say, a prodigious masterpiece of, say, um, Yellowstone National Park or, or uh, Yosemite. Or New,
2: New England,
1: or because he painted all yeah. over the country, but it was uh, especially out west. And the keeper thought he didn't know anything about art. Here he is flexing up on art.
2: Well, and <laughs> what was I getting at? But romanticism—one of the most beautiful things about romanticism—is it was also, uh, aside from the the uh, landscapes, the other big thing with romanticism was a sort of pride in one's culture and history, like Aethel Wolf mentions. Yeah. So this is when you get a lot of depictions of uh, mythology. This is when you get a lot of depictions of cultural heroes. This is where you... Is add- it
1: Romanticism, that, that era when they was painting? Typically, there would be a lot of nudes. I mean, there was a lot of landscapes going on at that time, but some of the more famous mm-hmm. ones are, are the nudes, where uh, you got the, 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 the soft image of the woman laying on... Uh, Whatever that That's funny couches,
3: Um Yeah, that is, I do believe, is part of the, um, as I, I I did speak about it, um, the restoration genre. Mm.
2: But, like, uh, I forget the exact ones, but, like, romanticism, that is... Especially people that work with, like, lore and mythology, like we tend to. Yeah. Uh, it is one of the
1: go-to genres when you want images. Right, well, and from what... Digging around, uh, looking at art, some of the most photorealistic images I've seen was landscapes. And and there's other ones, too, that involve buildings Mm -hmm. and people. And usually Mm -hmm. the people will be like background and silhouettes, I'm guessing, because Mm -hmm. it's rather difficult to do a photorealistic person up close. But there are some of those Mm -hmm. as well. And and this isn't like you show, show these paintings to people now. They're confused on is this is this a painting or is this a picture that you show me or uh, yeah. yeah a painting or a photograph and then you explain to them this is a painting they think it's modern like made now because it's so detailed of course people a couple hundred years ago couldn't have done that and they're just floored mm. when they find out that these paintings were done in 1600 1700 1800
0: yeah. Yeah.
2: well and art has always had uh, somewhat of a spiritual connotation as well. I mean, in mm-hmm. the modern day, it's de- well, like in the medieval era, There were, it, almost all art was religious to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You go back far and, enough, and... you have the petroglyphs, the cave yeah. paintings, or uh, a lot of the uh, jewelry and stuff, like the, the Scythian yeah. gold that is ludicrously detailed in how it's made. Mm-hmm.
3: And what, what was you going to say, uh, Neil? Uh, I was going to say that um, romanticism tends to capture the essence of the past. Uh, for example, when we have a look at Alfred, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, not Alfred, Albert B. Stutz, some, some of his artwork, especially of, I do believe, uh, I'm not really familiar with this particular tragedy, I have read about it, is the um, painting of the Hitch-Hitch Valley, Hitch-Hitchy mm-hmm. Valley. If, I, if I'm not mistaken.
1: I couldn't tell you.
3: And yes. it's. It, it's 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 the valley yeah it's it's the valley they damned back in the 1900s it was um John oh, okay, yep.
2: fight. yeah 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 and he it, lost yeah.
1: that one unfortunately
3: he and, lost that one
1: well and, and the realism to it extends with our with, with the hyperborean people thousands of years back because granted in the last couple hundred years or several hundred years it's in in the format of painting. But then you got sculptures. The stone sculptures. Um, and then you also have, of the north for sure, because this stuff is still around, metalwork. And some of it is extremely realistic. Like, the, uh, leaves carved carved into metal or, or um, what's that called when it's poured into a mold? Um, cast. Cast into metal. Yeah. And then refined so much that you can see the veins in the leaves or yeah. uh, armor because uh
2: like there would granted you don't typically go out to fight in the nicest armor because a usually it's typically more fragile because it's mm-hmm.
1: well and awesome. it's just more expensive it'd yeah. be like it'd be like taking your uh, maserati into battle versus taking uh you know, it's something a little bit more heavy-duty, like a Army Jeep. It's like
2: taking a limousine to a monster truck rally yes. to
1: compete. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You can do it. I would pay to see that. <laughs> you can do it, but you probably don't want to. <laughs> uh, I'm just imagining some rich guy just doing that just for shits and giggles. I'm sure it's been done. I, I think I've seen those before. Limousines, like, built up to be a monster truck. They never perform very well because they're too long, but... <laughs> Um, but
2: the armor, especially like ceremonial or parade armor Mm -hmm. is absolutely gorgeous or, um, well, and
1: they love to show off the lower quality stuff, um, and, and claim that this, this is as good as they could do. No, no. They, they could actually do faces, realistic faces in metal. Yep. Because um, yeah. it, it, there's one that they like to show off, the Viking, and it's just this flat this flat face uh, with the, the mm. eyes and a mouth and a, and a mustache on it, right? And yeah. people's like, oh, that's as good as they could do. Well, first of all, no. Second of all, look at the etchings that's on that faceplate. That alone should show that they could have done a realistic faceplate had they chosen to. Yeah. However... Instead, they opted for a flat one where they could do all this detail ornamentation on that Mm -hmm. faceplate. Well, it's like people like to um, dismiss a lot of things from the past
2: because we get shown the plainest versions. Yes. For example, clothing's a big one. Like, the Slavs are a notable exception to this. They have their ornate headdresses and, like, uh, embroidery. But something, some very uh, interesting clothing or uh, everyday items were present across all of europe it's just people have um, they're not shown them so they forget they exist
1: all right let's pause right here real quick um, for another commercial break and again i want to thank the, uh, the audience to the podcast for listening we really do appreciate you and uh, as we go we'll be able to improve the show due to your support so, thank you guys very much. And while we come back, uh, I would like to actually talk about color. It's something that's forgotten much about the past. So, here we go, and we'll, we'll be back in just a moment. All right, and we're back from the commercial break, and I wanted to actually discuss color because a lot of people think that colors in the past, everything was muted and dark and muddy. and uh, No, the colors were vibrant and bright. hmm
3: and, yeah and, the only reason why it looks like they have faded is because of age really
1: <laughs> well, and that's just the paintings and um well, in some cases even the clothes, but you can still get patches of uh they've they've dug up patches of fabric that was just very vibrant blues, very vibrant yellows, very vibrant reds yeah. and greens and
2: well even like uh it it's one of the most famous examples, sort of the uh celtic. Uh, tattoos or war paint or whatever people want to uh, deem them, but like the uh, the ones made out of woad, mm-hmm. that's really, really, uh, really vibrant, and it's something that people still to this day uh, they like to reference. They like to talk about. It was used in Braveheart inaccurately because I don't think they were still doing that. They also there was a lot of things that are yeah. Inaccurate. You're talking about the whole woad and. Yeah, I mean it's a cool movie, but it's uh,
1: yeah there were so many things inaccurate. I mean, you watch uh, Braveheart, for instance, falls under art because you watch it for the feel of it. You don't watch it for mm-hmm. the historical accuracy of it. Yes, you, they you, got the wrong weapons yeah. and the wrong time periods wearing uh, and the people wearing the wrong clothes and the wrong uh, hairstyles. The wrong every uh, everything historically is basically inaccurate about it. However, yeah. It's got a great feel to it, which is why people love it. Yeah, it's it's inspirational. Even historian buffs love it. Right up until people think that that's how that period of time was, and then they're like, "Well, no, it's a good movie." But no. Well,
3: and that's part of the. It inspires patriotism. Yeah, it does really. Well, and one encourage. of the courage.
2: Mm, yeah. One of the weirdest things is art has never been more powerful. If you think about it, if you include movies as that, because mm-hmm. you can literally use stories and images
1: to change people's perception of reality, mm-hmm. and whether it, to uplift them or to push them down, inspire fear in them or courage, precisely. And interestingly enough, this is this is a bit of a
2: funny thing with movies. But you brought up color. Mm-hmm. This is actually a really common thing that people complain about. But certain countries have specific colors. Like, anytime they film something in Mexico, all of a sudden they use, like, a, a yellow tint to everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, walk past the U.S.-Mexican border, all of a sudden, yellow. And you know you're in Mexico, because yes. it's yellow.
3: <laughs> yeah, I've never <not> myself. <laughs> Mexico's
2: yellow, what can you say? Or if yes. it's filmed in Scandinavia, more often than
1: not, it's gloomy and dark. Yes. gloomy Ooh. and dark. And the sun is never seen in England. Ever.
2: No, it's always cloudy. It's
1: always wet. rainy, rainy or wet. Yeah. Yes, it's uh, either rainy or it just rained. Or uh,
2: Spain, Sp- uh, the Spaniards in our group will hate me for this, but color wise, they treat Spain much
1: like Mexico. It, the Com- except for it's um, it's got a slightly more red hue to it than yellow, so mm-hmm. it's almost orangey. Or um, the Middle
2: East, the Middle East is almost always like. It's like they put all the light on,
1: all the light, and then, and then everything's just very slightly out of focus or overly yeah. focused. <laughs> Those are the two options. Yeah. Either they can't focus uh, it, or it's too sharp. I- I'm finding it to simulate
3: heat or something like that of the desert.
2: I am <laughs> finding back a really bad Middle Eastern bizarre
1: cellar accent that I re- want. To use, <laughs> yeah. but I'm gonna not do it. Yeah. <laughs> We're still training ourselves um, to, uh, uh,
0: to stay on be a
1: little bit more friendly and stay on topic. But yeah, the colors, they're, they've always been important. And colors have been around for as long as we've been able to make them, which is thousands of years. Yes. And we've always done them as well as we could. It—a um, a Medieval, Pository. and there's medieval paintings even. But um, most of those are horrible because they had to be sanctioned by the church. But um, everybody thinks that everybody wore like some weird, bland, off-brand green and brown. And that those were the only two colors allowed in medieval yeah. Europe. It's like, well, no, they had bright reds and greens and yellows and blues and gold and silver. And not all the gold and silver colors were actually gold and silver, much like uh, much like today. There's there's gold paint that doesn't have gold in it, and there's gold paint that does have gold in it. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, and um, color actually has very specific importance sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, the red and white of Martinistas or traditional embroidery
1: in. Um, In Slavic areas. Well, and this is something else that a lot of people don't realize about colors. Red is not just red. Red is... Red is many shades of red and made in many different ways. Yes,
2: because there's a very big difference between sort of a deep crimson blood color and a a much more lighter, almost poppy
1: color. Well, and not only that, you you can also tell where a color comes from. Just by the way that it looks. Like the the European reds, uh, uh, hues and pigments that are used are not the same as, uh, well, historically. um, It's less so today, but historically. Versus the Chinese red. Versus the Japanese red. Versus the Dravidian red. These were distinctly different, not even shades. I, I don't know. They have completely different looks and feels to them.
3: Well you, and yeah you uh, sorry, um as you as you also have um certain reds, I think maroon is one of them, if I'm not mistaken,,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and um burgundy are different shades,
2: well, and one big thing is uh purple that, because purple for the longest time was really, really hard to get as a color mm-hmm. so. Most people didn't use purple. That's why there's no purple in, like, uh, uh, flags. Because it was a ludicrously yeah. expensive color to buy. That's
1: why it I was... Think it comes from, I think uh, it comes from a kind of, like, shellfish. Yeah, and you can actually smell it. Yeah. You, you yeah. can You can
2: smell it. Well, that, but that's why you have the royal purple. Mm-hmm. And,
1: and, they were the only ones that could afford it, them and priests.
2: Yeah. And a big thing is different cultures have different colors and they mean different things mm-hmm. um we don't tend to uh are the hyperborean people are are the wilder folk uh, usually and um as a result we don't tend to over standardize things very much no so like some cultures have this color indicates this emotion and this time of year and this image on the zodiac right
1: and and we'll we'll draw our swords and grab our spears to be like no you're wrong it means this (laughs) And,
2: and we don't tend to we we honestly don't tend to do that like depending on who you're talking to blue could mean many different things it could mean melancholy it could mean happiness it could mean the ocean it could mean the sky um it could mean darn this is a rare color in nature not very many animals come
3: in blue um it it could also mean depth in a way if you think about it for um uh whether they call it um draw distance
2: true and one big thing with um with colors is there's actually an interesting inversion of certain colors like uh the color white in europe has a positive connotation, and that's not just it's yeah. not just a result of Christianity. That's we just have a positive connotation with it. But if you go to India, for instance, white is the color of death. It is not a. It is doesn't have an, a positive association at all. So yeah. the just something as simple as a color can be radically different.
1: Um. Black, for instance. Well, we, we've actually fought wars over colors. Um, opals, yeah, for, for instance. People are, are aware of what opals are. They're a, a gemstone, but really they're a rock yeah. that's called a gemstone. Um, mm-hmm. We've gone to war over opals before because they make the prettiest blue. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not kidding. That was the reason for it. It had nothing to do with the value of the stone itself as a gemstone. It had to do with the pigment that could be made with it.
2: Well, and here's a ludicrous thing, uh, a ludicrous fun fact about Australia and uh, opal is you can actually get fossils that are made from opal. Yeah. You know how like, yep. you can get like uh, fossils that are like... Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also
1: get... They don't just turn into stone. Sometimes they turn into opal. Well, uh, that's one of the reasons uh, that, you're, or that Hyperboreans use jade uh we became yeah, right, fascinated yeah. with with jade from the orient because of what they was carving out of it and oh hey isn't that cool and they're they making very very fragile things out of jade and oh hey that's cool but what because jade also occurs in europe what we use jade for was grinding the shit up and let's make some dye out of it let's make some paint out of it
2: or uh fun yeah. fact uh Jade also has a cooling factor, so there is a company um, that actually makes their a fabric, and they use this for underwear of all things, in the West. And they Uh, have the most important thing: keeping your junk nice and cool. And it actually it works because I've (laughs) gotten a few pairs before, uh, splurged a bit, (laughs) and yeah, it actually is cooling. I mean, it won't make you feel like you're you're you stuck your dick in a freezer. (laughs) <laughs> but it, it definitely does the trick uh, for to a certain point, and it, it, that's the kind of way we treated jade. Uh, if you want a uh, a gemstone that was very valuable in Europe for the longest time, you want amber. Amber was the shit. Yeah. There was there was a whole trade route, that,
1: just like. There I was really, I don't know if they used amber for. Um for uh dyes or not I I'm not I'm not certain I know that it was currency it was used for artwork I, th- I I'm well, not, and I don't if you think, think that about used it, it for uh for any dyes
2: well and if you think about it, it it's the I'm not it, certain well because they used to carve things out of it like mm-hmm. there's a really really old and it's really cool looking it's simple but it's really impactful it's a, this tiny carved pendant of a bear mm-hmm. out of amber and amber is actually my favorite gemstone because it's literally fossilized tree sap yeah it's of the forest yeah. as much as the hyperboreans are and i think that's one of the reasons that it was so important there's even goddesses that are associated with it like uh Jurate. her tears are amber she lived in an amber palace yeah I don't think she cried the palace into existence but there, there's some different versions of the story that change things a bit. But Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, uh, our,
3: I, 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 must say, I like, uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I must say, I like um, Malachite as a gemstone.
2: Oh, oh and there, there's an entire straight up goddess called uh, the Malachite Maiden over in uh, Russia.
3: Ooh. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and it, it's basically, it looks a lot like
1: Jade, but it's not Jade. Yeah. But yeah, so color and in particular vibrant colors is what our people seem to have historically uh looked for or very deep and rich like purple for instance. It, it's mm-hmm. hard to make and we're still drawn to it today or the very deep deep blues or greens. Uh, don't confuse deep with dark. Yeah. Two different two different things. Um, and, and you heard the, the artist actually agree with me. Deep and dark and color is two different things. Or very, yeah. very vibrant. Um, the most sought after colors in, um, in medieval um, Europe. And I'm positive before that based off from the few scraps that I've seen uh, researching archaeology. I haven't seen them in person. I'm not that cool. Um, but they seem to have been like vibrant and bright colors, which is why like the concept of sexy dirt and everybody wearing like these um, mm-hmm. mud brown pants and mud brown shirts yeah, and yeah, with their yeah. mud brown headbands and everything's okay. just mud brown. It wasn't a thing. And this is the funniest
2: thing is like um in Europe Especially with the males, what it tended to be was you would have darker colors, and the lighter colors would accent. Mm-hmm. This is this yeah. is very true with European styles. Our females they they like to uh, they like to show off a bit, so they might wear a bright blue dress with silk or something like that. But the men are typically a bit more reserved. Um, aside from like really regal uniforms, like. Uh, I don't know if the, the royalty got married, the king would have something very,
1: very I, w- I wanted to bring up Illuminations uh, because that's something that uh, you and me wanted to play with for uh, some of the upcoming um, print projects. But uh, yeah. we're getting a little low on time. we got about five mm-hmm. minutes left.
2: Well, and I think it's time to wrap up, and next time we can talk about Illuminations.
3: But, um, okay, uh, sorry, will it be able to, may I finish the last segment of this piece? Oh, yeah. If that's yeah. okay. With, yeah. yeah, go right ahead. Okay, um, yeah, just before you wrap up, I'd like to say that the genres of which we have mentioned, um, or should I say the aforementioned genres, inspire me on a daily basis because I hope that one day I will achieve the same greatness as the artists of a bygone era. Their legacies continue to thrive three to four hundred years after their death. Though in this day and age, I'm extremely concerned by the political climate of all things. Um, I I, I know we were going to try to avoid um, political discussions, but um, within the political climate of all things anti-European. So I'm quite worried about their safety because many of those works are irreplaceable. There are a lot of people who are fully aware of the importance and value of such works because they encapsulate European creativity, ingenuity and or innovation. I honestly fear for their well-being because we have noticed or we have seen of late people or certain people who do not like um, our art pulling down many portraits of our men um, from the walls, of institutions. So how long will it be until they transition from portrait removal to the complete removal of traditional paintings?
2: Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, and what Aethel Wolf is pointing out is you cannot... The art itself, because of how it affects people, it gives people pride, it gives people hope, it gives people meaning. Like, like we've been pointing out, there is that spark of the divine when you want to yeah. when you want to destroy a people and this is any people whether that's the uh, European peoples the Japanese or anybody you break their soul first mm-hmm. and part of that is destroying beauty yeah. and what's the first thing to go when you try to destroy beauty art art. It's the easiest thing to remove. I mean, it even gets cataloged in museums, typically.
3: It's the easiest thing to deface. Literally. Quite literally.
1: Yeah. All right, so I I guess I'll sign off first then. Yeah, I'll say, you know, art is intrinsic to, well, pretty much all the peoples of the world. But hyperborean art is intrinsic to the hyperborean people, so it, it's worth learning to to recognize it, appreciate it, remember it, learn how to create it. Because um, even if it's not actively destroyed, time alone will undo these, many of these great artworks. Learn how to replicate it, so that we can continue it on into the future. So these great techniques, these, these great examples don't get lost and forgotten to time. Um, and yeah, we're, we're the gods of the, of the future, and this is how we do that, is by learning from the past, doing in the present, so that we can pass it on to the future. And that's all I have to say.
2: And I'll finish up by saying the duty of an artist, and this is from a non-artist, is to manifest the divine and beautify the world. In many ways, while the will of generals and kings and people like that can shape the world, the artists are the ones that must paint the canvas, so to speak. And it is in this beauty, it is in this interaction with the divine, that we must value our artists and we must push for that, that renaissance that will awaken our wild and free hearts and will allow us to be who we are meant to be again because there needs to be some sort of light or beauty with which we can all reach towards and whether it's that divine quality or it's just something simple like your child painted this when they were five that little bit of light that little bit of Divine spark. That means something, and when put all together, I think the world's a bit brighter and a bit more spectacular with art in it.
3: And that's uh, that's all I got. All right. So, um, I'm not going to subject your ears to another long-winded, another long-winded spiel. But um, all I can say is this, never be afraid to challenge yourself. Never be afraid to try something new or to try a new genre. Do what you can, follow your passion, and perhaps one day you might be able to um, sort of relive the very legacies of those before us. Because at the end of the day, We really need to ensure the continuity of many, uh, sorry, of those genres, to um, to basically uh, ensure the 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 continual existence of um, of of the of the importance of art. And on that note, uh, Ethel Wolf out.
0: I dreamed a dream the other night, Lola I saw my own true love. screen of my yellow hair
2: Thank you.